Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Vincent Pluvinash, CEO and co-founder of 1D Battery Sciences. On this episode, Vincent will talk about breakthrough technology that can increase EV battery energy density and make them more affordable. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Vincent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here because you're an expert in battery technology. You got your start in Bell Labs and battery technology, as you and I both know, is evolving. It's changing rapidly. There's geopolitical su supply chain issues that also tie into that. Vincent, in your opinion, what is the current state of the EV charging market? Well, the EV charging market is, I would say, emerging. Simply put, there is a certain amount of charging station around the world, uh, mostly started by Tesla and then by others later on. But it's not yet faced the challenge of having to recharge millions and millions of, uh, of cars every day. A lot of the early EVs are quite expensive. They are being purchased by people that can afford to have a power wall at home in the garage. And in the future, a lot of EVs will be purchased by people that afford less expensive cars and that maybe live in apartment buildings. And so the landscape will change in terms of charging. When we look at charging, it's the EV battery, then there's the reports that I've read about the degradation of battery. How do we fix the battery so they can be properly have enough amount of range, so they can be charged when they need to be charged conveniently, not inconveniently? Yeah, so one of the, the, the mysteries of too many people is that if you charge too much a battery or if you discharge it too much, i.e. you go down to 0% or close to 0% or you go up to 100% of the state of charge, then you're really what they call abusing the battery, which means that you're reducing the lifetime. And uh, that creates, of course, some anxiety. Now, you could fix that by uh, preventing people to go all the way up or all the way down, but that's not really the right solution. The right solution is to have, for most of the trips that you take on a daily basis, a battery that is small enough to fit in the car, that is inexpensive enough that the car is affordable, but that has a range that exceeds by 20-30% the range that you will need in which case you can discharge um, down to 10, 20% and recharge to 70, 80%. And in that range, you can actually charge faster without having any problems. So, uh, and to charge faster is a dependency on two elements. One is a dependency on the cell themselves, the chemistry inside the cells that are in the battery pack. And the other is the, the power of the charging station. Uh, as you know, there is level one, level two, and then DC charging with different kind of voltage and power. Uh, the superchargers can charge at a rate of uh, 50, 100, 150, 200 kilowatt. And that can charge very quickly, but you don't find them everywhere. So there is two sides to the coins, the, the cell and the, and the charging station. So you you know my story from toe to te to head. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So I think that there is a, a number of elements in a battery that make batteries expensive today. I think that uh, at the macro level, there is supply and demand. 
right now the rise of the demand is so fast there is a restriction on the supply and that of course is not only the supply of the battery themselves but the supply of the materials that go into the battery and uh, as anybody knows in economics supply and demand that drive prices and so that could over time correct itself because a lot of investments around the world are increasing the supply, which is going to make it less expensive. So that's one aspect. Then there is the second aspect, which is really looking into the chemistry inside the battery. And uh, there is different materials that go in the battery. For example, on the anode side, there is graphite. On the cathode side, there is things that are made of nickel and uh, cobalt and manganese and other things of that sort. And uh, as you change the chemistry, you can change the price because those different uh, ingredients have different costs associated with them. I think there is a third aspect, which is the manufacturing methods. It's mind-boggling what happened inside an EV cell factory. And it's completely different in terms of scale than, say, a factory that makes cells for a cell phone or cells for a watch. And so the, the manufacturing techniques are getting improved. And it's a bit the same way that happened in semiconductor when you go from, for example, a certain size wafer and uh, nodes that are 32 nanometers. And then uh, a decade later, you have uh, a larger size wafer and the nodes are maybe eight nanometers and pretty soon they will be at three nanometers or two nanometers. Then the manufacturing cost change because you can produce a much larger number of items at a decreasing cost because the manufacturing equipment, manufacturing process are improved. And so I think those are the key elements that goes into making uh, things cheaper. Now, lithium-ion batteries have already experienced a decrease in about 90% in dollar per kilowatt hours over the last 10 years. But if you compare that to what happened in solar, or solar, is further along, and there were a decrease of 99% of the cost of making uh, solar cells. And so we are basically, ha on a logarithmic basis, halfway through this process. And, uh, and that's what we need to do, basically, is we need to, to continue investing in all of those elements. How concerned are you with the bottlenecks? We've seen them on the semiconductor side with the Taiwan-China issue. We've seen it with ASM. L can controlling the licensing around the technology to build the chips. And if you look at the battery supply chain, a lot of it's going through China and there's the geopolitical issues there. Then we have the issues in Zimbabwe in the Congo for the raw materials. And it just seems that the supply chain for these materials is, I'll use the term very unstable with a lot of geopolitical issues that could bring this to a grinding halt. What, what issues and role does that play? Well, I think that it is a significant issue because the ingredients that go into the batteries are mostly coming from China. For example, almost 100% of the graphite in the United States and in Europe that goes into EV cell factories come from China. So that's a, a, a real problem. I think that this will correct itself as people establish supply chain in other parts of the world. But then you have to talk about the cost of energy. And uh, <coughs> the cost of energy and the cost of permitting for all the factories is way too high. There is also an issue of supply of uh, qualified labor. And so many of the 
the thing that exists in China do not exist in uh, Europe or United States today. And so there is a, a large need for supply of qualified labor. The labor, you're, you're right around the, la- the labor issues there. The, the permitting is the, when's the last time we built a refinery in the United States? So you, you have all those issues. And I think it's something before we go all into electrification, we really have to think about the supply chain and actually the materials. And as the batteries get more dense, I'm really curious, what role will 1D silicon nanotechnology play in that? Yeah, so it's been known for about two decades to everybody around the world that silicon can store more lithium ion and electron per gram than graphite. That's not new, but we found a way to make the the addition of silicon into the anode of EV batteries much cheaper than anybody else, especially on the dollar per kilowatt hours. Our manufacturing process is actually reducing the cost of the battery. Uh, so we increase the, the energy density, we increase the charging speed, but we reduce the cost of the batteries. And that's critical because without doing that, it's unclear how you can make affordable EVs. Is silicon the missing ingredient to make affordable EVs then? It's one of the missing ingredients today. It's been used by Tesla since 2019 in a small amount in the Tesla 3 cells. But the technology that they use to put the silicon in the Tesla 3 cells cannot be increased. There are technical limitations. It's also an expensive additive. So people have been looking for alternative ways of putting more silicon in the cells. And I would say that's one of the many elements, not the only one, but it's a necessary one. You write a lot about this and you've spoken publicly about this. And I want to highlight this around the 1D business model. You compare it a lot to ARM. You wrote this beautiful piece on LinkedIn where you said ARM is a licensing and then Apple builds their M chips on top of that. How do you compare the 1D battery sciences business model to ARM? I could do it, but you do it much more eloquently than I would. Yeah, it's it's something that I've uh, been fascinated with, uh, quite frankly. There is a few of such business models, Dolby being another one. But let me go explaining what ARM did. ARM was a small UK company that uh, had a bunch of engineers, less than a dozen engineers, that wanted to compete uh, in making the first microprocessors. And uh, because there were so few engineers and they did not have a large funding, they actually focused on the architecture of the ARM CPU, which requires less transistors. It's called risk architecture. So you use instruction sets for the programming that are very short. And Intel and AMD actually choose the opposite, the, the complex uh, instruction set, which makes the microprocessor initially more performant, but also more expensive and using more energy. And uh, what ARM did, which was quite interesting, is that instead of developing a model in which they would design their own chip, and then they would build a factory to build the chips, and then they would sell the chips to uh, the industry, they decided to go after part of the market that was uh, really looking for two things, looking for the ability to fine tune the chips to their specific needs and looking for the ability to do chips that cost less. For example, if you're going to put electronics into the brake system of a car, 
you cannot afford the same kind of uh, expensive CPU that you would find on a laptop. And because ARM tried to address multiple co uh, customers, what they did is that they licensed the architecture that they had developed to those customers with the right to modify or adapt, if you wish, the building blocks to their needs. And uh, over the years, uh, two things happened. One is that more and more people started using the ARM uh, processors to develop various chips that were increasingly more sophisticated. And as they did that, the library of software that run onto those chips kept growing. And that means that new companies that uh, wanted to use the ARM architecture could leverage what other people had done because the, the library of building blocks kept increasing and the library of software that runs on, a, on those building blocks kept increasing. So the value of the ecosystem became very large. I think the second thing that happened is that ARM, because it did not have to build factories, was in the viable position that they could take the revenues and reinvest that in R&D. And so ARM for decades has had one of the largest ratio of R&D spending divided by revenues. Much higher, for example, than Intel, who does a lot of R&D, but has to spend a ton of money on building very expensive factories. So that allowed them to actually evolve the ARM CPU building block to become very sophisticated and be able to deliver a lot of performance at a much uh, lower cost, but also a much lower power consumption. So that's one thing that happened. While ARM was doing this, there was another part of the ecosystem that also evolved. And that part of the ecosystem is the manufacturing. And in the manufacturing, something similar and complementary took place. You have company like ASML in Holland that developed photolithography equipment to essentially print those chips on wafers. And that company has done an amazing job at developing more and more sophisticated equipment to be able to cram more and more transistor per square centimeter of wafers. And then you have companies like TSMC in Taiwan who adopted the equipment for ASML, became the world's best manufacturer in the world. So all of their talent, if you wish, all of their capital, human capital and cash flows, got into making those incredible factories that really outshine everybody else, including Intel. So the segmentation of the market uh, essentially allowed some people to concentrate on the design of the IP, semiconductor IP, and that was ARM, other people to concentrate on the design of the uh, equipment and other people on the manufacturing. So then ARM started licensing companies like NVIDIA and Apple and Qualcomm. And those are incredible companies with very sophisticated product, but they don't make their own chips. They're very happy to rely on TSMC and others to make the chips. So those companies started uh, to fine tune the ARM architecture to their product. It's no secret that Apple operating system and Apple software is extremely well integrated with the hardware. But it's no secret also that over the years, it became easier for Apple to adjust 
the ARM CPU to become Apple Silicon rather than to continue using the Intel CPU. And a couple of years ago, they threw out Intel and replaced it with Apple CPU. And nowadays, what's incredible is that the laptops based on Intel's are shrinking, but Apple is gaining market share. And not only the Apple CPU is in the MacBook Pro, but now in the MacBook Air in the, and all of the other products, including the iPad and also in the uh, latest uh, virtual reality headset. And that shows really the power of segmentation. Let certain people do what they do best and other people complement those skills and those IP with their own uh, needs and their own uh, market share. Is the goal for 1D to allow other individuals to build on top of your technology and the similar, because you have the, the deal with GM for um, joint R&D is to develop it and morph it into what fits their product. You mentioned with the Apple, so the, the Apple Silicon works for them. Is that the deal with GM where, where your technology can help morph into the product that they need? Yeah, exactly. And 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 when I say that, it means two things that are complementary. There is first the design phase, which is to integrate our technology into an EV cell. Well, we know very well that each of the different large OEM, and GM is not an exception, Tesla and BMW and VW and Toyota, have their own market roadmap. And when they want to design cells for the batteries that goes into their cars, they take the approach that they would like to fine-tune the cells to deliver the best performance at the best price or the best cost to various market segments. <coughs> so you may not need exactly the same cell in a high-performance car than in a large-volume car. And so the ability that has been lacking to date is that uh, the EV battery as uh, business has grown so fast at a scale that is so difficult for everybody to catch up, that the supply of EV cell is dominated by six companies. And two are Chinese, BYD and CATL, three are Koreans, which is Samsung, LG, and SK, and one is uh, Panasonic. And those companies account for about 84% of all the EV cell batteries today. Now, when you have that scale and everybody comes to you, and you're able to sell you know, two, three, four, five years worth of um, production on the books for tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. Those companies tend to be very protective of their know-how. They want to basically sell in large quantities to everybody, and they don't want to entertain the idea that they're going to customize their cell manufacturing or the cell design for one of the customers because that's the, that, that is the opposite route that they're going, which is all about market share and economy of scales. And so there is this Intel mentality that resides in all of the large uh, cell, dominant cell manufacturers. And the Intel mentality is sometimes summarized at NIH, not inverted here syndrome. They typically do not have a lot of history of incorporating other people's ID into their design. Now, that leaves a market need that is unfulfilled, which is the OEM that try to do something that is differentiated and fits their needs. Now, they like what we propose because when we go to a GM or we go to a European OEM, I'm currently in Munich, 
we don't go there and say, we have the magic powder. This magic powder is a drop-in and it's the answer to all you need and a solution to all your problems. We don't believe that exists. We actually think that when other companies say that, it's laughable. What instead we say is that we have a technology platform which we can make available to you, including the IP rights, so that you can adopt that platform to fine-tune the cell design to meet your target specs. And that's step number one. And we do that with what's called a joint development agreement. As they get confident that the cell design is meeting their need, then they have a second need. And the second need is to say, how am I going to make enough quantities of this material to do the pre-production qualification? And nobody is, is stupid enough or, or to put into a production car a battery pack that has not been thoroughly tested. The qualification process is about two years long and requires to manufacture five to 10,000 battery pack. <clears throat> so you can imagine that you need larger quantities that beyond what is required during the prototyping phase. So we have designed these pilot facilities where our customers can send the ingredient they wish to use, can use the recipe that we have perfected with them for their own cells. And those pilot facilities make enough quantities of the anode material and ships it to the cell makers so they can do the pre-production qualification. But then the most interesting part is what happened when they say, now we want to put this in millions of cars. And what we have told all of our customers, and much to our delight they have loved, is that we told them, we are not the right company to try to scale up to very large quantities, tens of thousands of tons. We are not the right company for at least three reasons. The first one is we are a startup. We are good at inventing the stuff, but we're not a manufacturing outfit, and manufacturing is hard. And there are better companies that do that on a very large scale, chemical companies around the world that uh, build and operate very large plants. The second reason is the startup typically has a high cost of capital, at least 30%, if not more. And if you invest in manufacturing, you have to deploy very large sums of money. And if your cost of capital is high, that's going to make the depreciation cost very high, and that's going to make the manufacturing very uneconomical. But publicly traded large industrial companies <clears throat> have a much lower cost of capital, maybe five, six, seven percent. And they have already all of the infrastructure internally and the supplier externally to build and operate large plants. So that's the second reason why it, it, our customers love the idea that we're going to license the, the manufacturing process to much larger companies. And I think there is a third reason. Nobody wants to be dependent on one company when it comes to large-scale supply. And so we will have, and we are negotiating with, multiple industrial partners, at least one in the United States, at least one in Europe, so that the customers can rely on multi-sourcing from large companies that are going to be here 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and they've already existed 50 years before. And so that continuity, that solidity, if you wish, is very important to our customers. And that's why the licensing model works. It works because you're giving them options. You mentioned Intel, and I think of Andy Grove, 
the paranoia from the hell that he went through growing up. Does the BYD, the CATLs, the Panasonic, do they, when do they have the Randy Grove paranoid moment? Or they just go the way that Intel currently is today. They're trying. They're oh, we're going to build a foundry. It's, you're, you're too. You're too late. But meanwhile, you're going this other track, which I think is the future. And you, and you clearly, elegantly said it with harm. But do they end up like Intel today? Because that seems kind of where they're going. Well, I, I think the two models can easily coexist, and I think that Intel is not going to disappear, and I think CATL and BYD are not going to disappear. I think that what's happening with BYD and certainly CATL to some extent is that they're going the other way. They're actually vertically integrating. They're integrating upstream with the materials and downstream with making cars. Uh, many of the, the, the cars that are growing right now in market share, BYD EVs, so I think that the world will not be all one model or all the other model. Today, the world is not all on. I think that uh, what we're trying to say is that there is uh, different needs in the marketplace, and uh, we're trying to concentrate on the needs that we can uh, fulfill the best. I think that one of the things that is very different from other companies that are new to the, the business is that when I invested into this company about 11 years ago, the CTO, Yimin Zhu, had already made a significant number of key inventions. He has been working on this for 16 years. And I read all of the patent applications and I was flabbergasted. And I understood then that he had the priority date, i.e. he was well ahead of his time, and what I needed to do is invest in making sure that all of those patent applications get granted around the world, in Japan, in Korea, in China, in the United States, and in Europe. And we spent between half a million and a million dollar a year for the last 10 years, making sure that all of those inventions, which were barely patent application when we invested in the business 11 years ago, got strong claims granted. And why is that so important? It's not only important to our investors because it protects our investment, but if we did not have that portfolio, we could not do a licensing model. Because for a licensing model to work, two things need to happen. First, the licensees must co be convinced that what we are offering them in terms of manufacturing process and materials is something that has what it call freedom to operate. Freedom to operate means that if our licensee start putting 100, 200, 300 million dollars of capex into the ground to operate our technology at large scale, they don't want to discover that somebody is going to show up one day with a bunch of patents and say, you have to shut down a factory or pay me some royalties. And so the freedom to operate analysis is not easy because it's not just looking at one company's patents, it's looking at all of the patents that exist around the world that could be overlapping. And I've done that. I've read over two or 3,000 patents. As a matter of fact, every Sunday, I get an automatic tool that runs all the database in the world and send me anything new that is relevant to my business. I think that very few people do that. There is another reason, and this other reason I'm going to explain by way of an example. We all know that the Chinese are able to deploy huge manufacturing capacity in part because they have virtually zero cost of capital. 
they get a lot of bank loans for large commitment even before the, there is an offtake agreement. And that has allowed the Chinese graphite supplier to take market share away from other graphite suppliers, for example, Shoadenko in Japan, because Shoadenko had a perfectly great graphite for EV cells, but it was too expensive. And when it was time to expand the business, Shoadenko being run as a proper company in Japan with a need to show profits to justify investment, couldn't afford to deploy 100 or $200 million ahead of demand in order to create such a surplus that then the, they could afford to sell the graphite below cost or at marginal cost of zero. As a result of that, they got displaced. And that's the reason that today we depend so much on the graphite coming from China in Europe and the United States, the same way that we 93% of the older solar cells are made in China. Now, how does 1D provide a potential solution to that problem? And I'm going to use an example here. There are graphite suppliers in the United States. <laughs> in terms of natural graphite suppliers, <clears throat> I know, for example, of two companies. One is called Nouveau Monde Graphite in Quebec, and the other one is called Sierra Resources in, uh, I think, Louisiana. And both of those companies are fine companies, very good management. They know what they're doing. And they already have about 2,000 tons of graphite supply running for qualification with the EV cell makers. As a matter of fact, they've even gone through the qualifications with uh, Tesla, LG and Panasonic entering into offtake agreement with these companies. But here is the problem. In order to ramp up to 40,000 tons, Nouveau Monde Graphite in Quebec or Sierra in Louisiana needs to raise about $600 million, if not a billion dollars. And when they do the business case, there is, of course, plenty of demand because the U.S. market for graphite is huge. It's projected to be close to a million tons per year of graphite necessary for 10 million cars. But the problem is that if a few years from now there is a, a pricing war, then the profit margins of these domestic suppliers or North American suppliers could be squeezed, making it difficult to repay the debt that came into play to set up those factories. So there is a financing risk, if you wish. Now, how do we solve that? We solve that, I think, in a very elegant way. We can take the graphite from a Nouveau Monde, to give you an example, in Quebec, who has a fantastic mine, about 350,000 tons on the ground, could be extracted. They use hydroelectricity, so the carbon footprint is one-tenth of the carbon footprint of imported graphite. They have a partnership with Caterpillar that has electrified the trucks to do the mining. And they really have a great future because of that. We can take that product, and if you take 40,000 ton of their EV-grade graphite, that would be just enough for about 700,000 vehicles. But if you take that 40,000 tons, which is the output of the billion dollar of investment they have to make, and you process it with our technology to add the silicon, then suddenly two things happen. One is that the value goes up and the cost goes down. 
And the second thing is we can protect that product because of our patent. It's no longer a commodity. And I'm going to explain to that in a minute. But let me first explain the bottom line. The same 40,000 tons of graphite, once it's processed with our technology and we add the silicon to it, is enough for 2.1 million EVs. So now the same producer can serve three times the number of EVs. Now, that is really doing two things. It's not only bridging the gap between supply and demand, but it's also addressing another problem, which is how do we reduce our carbon footprint and how do we reduce the mass of the batteries so that the batteries can be smaller and fit in a more affordable car. Now, let me talk about the patent side of it. The patent laws exist around the world in a way that is nationalistic, which means that when you get granted a patent in the UK, you can protect only in the UK with the UK patents. The same is true in the United States, the same is true in Europe or in Korea or in Japan. But several decades ago, the Congress of the United States did something a little bit different. They added to the patent law something that most people don't know, and uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to describe to you, and it's called 271G. And what 271G does is the following. It says that if you have a manufacturing process in the United States that is patented and it's producing XYZ product and somebody goes into a country in which you do not have a patent, for example, China or Brazil or Indonesia, somewhere around the world, and uses that manufacturing process to make the same product, for example, we get copied by a Chinese company that established a plant in Brazil. And they make the synanode look-alike graphite in Brazil and put that in cells and put that in batteries and put that in cars. And now the cars are being shipped to the United States. Then United States patent law offers you or me or our licensees or the OEMs the ability to go to the ITC, the International Trade Commission, which has one year to verify the claim that the product that is being imported in the United States contains a, process, a material that would have been infringing if the process had been practiced in the United States. So even though I do not have a patent in Brazil, Whatever they're doing in Brazil would be infringing if they were doing it in the United States. That's enough to block it. And once you get an order from the ITC, you can prevent at custom the importation of any product that includes that uh, infringing process. Now, that's extremely powerful because it allows our licensees and people like NMG to go to the banks and to go to the financial, financial markets and say, I'm going to use this process to increase the value of uh, my product and to decrease the cost and to make the batteries lighter. And I'm I don't mind paying royalties because there is plenty of margins once you do all these things. But in addition, I will be protected against copycat that are unlicensed. And let's face it, when Dolby, for example, licenses you know, Sony and Samsung and Panasonic for the Dolby sound, 
nobody but wants to pay royalties if it's not a fair game, if the other people don't have to pay royalties. And so the ability to have strong enough IP that nobody is going to get around it is something that took us a decade. We have it today. I don't believe any other silicon solution has the ability to offer the freedom to operate that we can offer. And that's a valuable piece of the equation in changing both the economics, the benefits, and the geopolitical game. It's a game changer. It levels the playing field. So it allows yourself, your investors to continue to make investments in your IP portfolio because it's a level playing field. I mean, you have the United States Congress enacting it. It adds more ammo and makes the playing field more level because, as you know, this the IP theft around the world is astronomical, and this is a really good way to do it, and it creates more investment opportunities for your technology and for your IP. So now we have a level playing field for IP. How do you see the battery market evolving in the future? Are there more companies, 1D, that decides to go and create the licensing, or do you see new chemistries being invented by startups? Where do you see the battery market going in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that because of the size of the market and the growth rate, it's attracting a ton of capital. There is a lot of smart people around that are all interested in participating. Some of them are in startups and <coughs> certainly venture capitalists who have shy away from investing in batteries in the previous decades are now very interested in uh, EV batteries. I think large companies, even that were in adjacent field, that were close to the battery business, are now looking at getting into the battery business. I'll give you just one example. Silicon is everywhere. Why? Because silicon after oxygen is the second most common element in the Earth's crest. So we're not, never going to run out of silicon. The, the Sahara, Sahara Desert has more than a trillion tons of silicon. Okay. Now, that is fueling many different sectors. It's fueling the computing chips in the foundries. It's fueling the solar cells. It's fueling now the batteries. But that means also there are synergies. For example, when you take MGS, which is metallurgical grade silicon, which is basically quartz where some of the impurities have been removed, but not all of it. So there's about 2% impurities. You could not use that in batteries because the impurities would kill the battery. So you have to refine it. You have to make it more pure. Well, we don't have to start from scratch because the way you make solar cell today is that you take this MGS, this 98% pure silicon, and you make a gas called silane, which is called SiH4, one atom of silicon, four atoms of hydrogen. And that gas, of course, goes up in the distillation column and leaves behind all the impurities. So you can make the saline gas that is 99.9999% pure. And then people that make solar cell, they take that gas and precipitate, precipitate the silicon and then return the hydrogen to make more saline. And they make a powder that is called polysilicon, pure polysilicon. And that is used to make ingot, which is used to make wafers, which is used to make solar cell. So the worldwide production of saline gas is about a million tons per year. We use the same gas. 
And the equipment that goes into the cell factories to make the solar cell is called a CVD equipment. And if you go to the large factories in China, there is hundreds and hundreds of those machines. We use the same machine. And that's the way that we keep the cost down. Everything we do, we piggyback on another industry that has already operated at scale for decades and reduce cost. You'll be surprised to know the following. I'll just give you one number. One of those large machines in which you normally put solar cell wafers is pretty tall. It's probably, uh, I would say, maybe uh, 15 foot tall or maybe 12 foot tall. And it has five tubes. And normally it processes 6,000 wafers for solar cell per hour. We can use those machines because we design a manufacturing process to keep the machine the same. But instead of putting solar cell wafers, we put what we call catalyzed graphite into it, which is EV-grade graphite that is already produced in large quantities by a known supplier, already qualified with EV cell factory. We add a catalyst, I'll describe that to you in a minute, and then this graphite powder can go into that big machine and one machine can do a thousand ton per year. And that thousand ton per year represents three gigawatt hour of anode material. And three gigawatt hours is three billion watt hours or three million kilowatt hours. So if you have a car that is, you know, uh, if, if you try to do a factory, that is supplying 30 gigawatt hours for half a million cars. You need only 10 of those machines. And guess what? In China, those machines are less than $2 million. So we have designed the manufacturing process where the precursors and the equipment, in effect, leveraging the economy of scale that has already taken place in an adjacent market. But then something interesting comes, is that people that have been in that business which is a brutal business. You can imagine that being in a solar cell business, there's a lot of competition. They become interested in our business because it, be, it says, I have the skills, I have the equipment, I know how to do this. So now you have new entrants that are interested to take what they have learned in other businesses that are adjacent technically and enter the manufacturing space. I could give you about a dozen examples of that sort. What, what happened is that this is the largest industrial transformation of any industry in our lifetime, much bigger than the transition from landline phone to cell phones, much bigger than the transition from mainframe to laptops. This is 10 times bigger economically, and it's affecting millions of jobs. And that's attracting a lot of people, and it's attracting a lot of innovation. It's going to have a major global economic impact. What you described is, is scalable because the costs are coming down. Vincent, this has been an insightful, frankly, a fascinating conversation around all, all things batteries. And as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what do you would you, would you like our listeners to take away with them today? Well, two things. Of course, I um, would like to, to mention that 1D Battery Science is a company to watch. And Synanode is a technology that will be in millions of cars. And uh, we have a lot of good news coming up later this year. I think the second piece is uh, there is no stopping the inventions that can be made, whether it's in materials or manufacturing process. 
But one has to be very, very careful about how you deploy those inventions from the business model point of view and from the finance point of view. You know, the solar cell business thrived for many decades in the United States and in Europe because many of the key inventions were made in the United States and in Europe. And today it's 93% in China. We should avoid doing that. We should protect the invention. And the most interesting invention are manufacturing invention. Manufacturing inventions not only create jobs, but competitive advantage. There, there's no stopping innovation with the right business model. There is no stopping innovation with the right business model. Today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is 1D Battery Sciences. Vincent, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.